Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Writer Edwige Dantica has devoted her career to exploring the Haitian-American experience. Born in Haiti, she came to the U.S. at 11. She later graduated from Barnard College and then Brown University. Her master's thesis at Brown became the acclaimed novel Breathe, Eyes, Memory. Other books include a memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, and Crick, Crack, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Tonight, Dantica will receive the St. Louis Literary Award. It's presented by the St. Louis University Library Associates. The two most recent winners before this were Stephen Sondheim and Margaret Atwood. Joining me in studio to talk about it is Edwidge Dantica. Edwidge, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And congratulations to you on your award. Thank you. Do you out there listening have a question for Edwidge Dantica? Which of her books is your favorite? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Edwidge, your parents came here as undocumented immigrants. Basically, your father was on a tourist visa, and then he overstayed for something like eight years. So when you hear the rhetoric surrounding people who come here without the right papers, what goes through your mind? Well, I think about people like me. I think about families like mine who, especially at this moment in time, are facing uh, stigmatization, um, but also real um, policy challenges. Um, my parents made this decision to uh, come to the U.S. because they were facing really difficult circumstances and they wanted to have a better future for their children. So if they hadn't made um, that choice, which was difficult, um, then I wouldn't be getting the St. Louis Literary Award. I wouldn't have gotten these um, this opportunity. So what comes to my mind is that you know people should... Um, know that there are very, sometimes really difficult circumstances that lead to people making this choice, and that um, and they have real consequences um, that they face. They work really hard, like my parents did, and sometimes it has a really good ending, like like what happened to me. Now, you mentioned how difficult your parents' choice was, and I know you've written about this a lot, but but part of what made it so incredibly difficult is they had to leave you and your brother behind for years. That seems like a choice that that it's almost an impossible one for a parent to make. And yet at the same time, we see all these people saying, why don't these immigrants just go through the right door? Your parents did what they had to do. Well, I mean, that I think about my parents and their choice when I see parents on the border with, with their children or parents in crossing the Mediterranean on these boats with their small children. I mean, immigrant families don't win sort of this, this when they're talked about in this way. If you leave your children behind, you're, you know, you're bad parents. If you take them on these um, arduous journeys that, you know, you're talked about in a certain way. But, you know, the poet um, Orson Shire has a wonderful poet called Home, a poem called Home, where she talks about that. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark, she says. Mm-hmm. And um, and people are often, you know, leaving behind, especially, you know, the recent migrations that we've seen. People are leaving wars. They're leaving um, threats. They they literally feel like, whether they're come with their children or not, they really feel like they, they, they're saving their lives. And it's a very, you know, immigration, especially these days when people are fleeing climate, um, political situations that are very difficult, it's not an easy choice for those who are making it. They don't suddenly wake up in the morning and say, like, I'd like to walk through a desert and risk my life, or I'd like to cross an ocean. 
and and leave my children. Mm-hmm. Now, in some ways, U.S. immigration policy is is more dr- draconian than it's ever been with some of the situation on on the southern border. Yet the story of how your uncle was treated, and this was back, I guess, about 15 years ago, it's absolutely harrowing. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to him? Well, in 2004, um, my uncle... They was facing some difficult moments in Haiti, as there are many, you know, it's a difficult moment right now. Um, and um, the United Nations, which was then uh, the force that, that, that was in Haiti, uh, came to his church because they, they were um, and, and shot at some people who they said were in gangs. And they did it from my, the roof of my uncle's church. And after they retreated, um, there were people in the neighborhood, some of them, um, turned against my uncle, so he had to to flee. And he was 81 years old and had been coming to the U.S. Uh, for 30 years. And he had a valid visa. But when he arrived at the immigration in Miami, about 15 minutes from where I lived, um, was a cancer survivor who spoke in a voice box. With a voice box, was asked how long he would be staying, and he said that he wanted temporary asylum. He wanted to go back, but he knew that he would have to stay more than 30 days. So he was. Um, arrested, detained, and his medications were taken away. And five days later, he died chained to a bed in a county hospital um, in the custody of the Department of Homeland Security. It's such a horrible story. And I feel like the story that we tell ourselves in America these days is that we were always so welcoming to immigrants, and now Trump has changed that. Do you think Americans are in denial about the fact that our immigration um, system has been screwed up for a long time? Um, the immigration system has been, uh, you know, there have been stories like that for a long time. But I think this is an especially, um, you know, draconian moment, um, as you said. I mean, it's very, um, for example, in the neighborhood where I live, I had not seen, you know, ice trucks before. People were not being taken from buses. It is true, like my mother, for example, in, in the 80s, you know, during the Reagan era, was arrested in a, in a factory where she was pregnant and was detained. Um, so there were always these stories. But I think in this moment, it's, you know, the fact, for example, that there were policies trying to keep people from seeking um, public assistance. Like if you, mm-hmm. you know, but what we're not, we don't talk also about, in the United States we have, especially where I live in South Florida, there's mixed status immigration families. So you have U.S.-born children in a lot of these families with parents. One parent might be undocumented, and, and people are try, some people are working towards their status. Those people are being deported. And um, there's DACA, you know, mm-hmm. the Deferred for Childhood Arrivals. We, almost a million people in limbo. These are these dreamers, um, yes. kids who were brought here as babies. Yes. So all of these things are a little more extreme at the moment. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a. <laughs> this is many things that we can't be proud of as a nation right now. Um, thinking about Haiti, um, this has been such a subject of your work for so many years, and yet so many Americans don't think about Haiti at all. And if they do, they just think of it as as this place of hopelessness and of desperate poverty. For Americans who haven't given much thought to your homeland, what would you want them to know? Well, you know, Haiti uh, in the United States have a very long history, and we're in St. Louis, the home of Kathleen Dunham, who loved Haiti and who had uh, traveled to Haiti, had a home in Haiti. Um, but, you know, Haiti and the U.S. were the first republics in this hemisphere, and and uh, Haitians came and fought in the American Revolution here. And But Haiti also, when Haiti uh, 
a, a big part of the United States for the Louisiana Purchase, for example, um, resulted as a result of, of the, the French being defeated in Haiti and then suddenly needing funds and selling this big chunk hmm. of the of you know of, of this country. So this really this, shaped yeah. American history. Yeah. And yeah. I have a feeling that, that Haitians might be more aware of, of some of these connections in a way that I think most Americans aren't. Well I think a lot of Americans also aren't they're not aware of this historical you know uh, involvement, but also even the, the U.S. involvement in Haiti, that the U.S. occupied Haiti in 1915 to 1934, and that there's always been U.S. In, interventions and in, in, in Haitian political uh, life. And and so we were not aware, like, we just, there's like a very single narrative about Haiti and the United States. So if some of us wanted to correct our ignorance about Haiti, is there a book that you'd point to as saying this is the best place to start? Would it maybe even be one of your books? Um, I, you know, not necessarily one of my books, I think. Um, but there, there are quite a few books. Um, you know, there's a book called Written in Blood that's about Haitian history, um, you know, throughout. Um, and so this would be sort book, of a good overview yes, of the history, written in blood. I can't, I can't remember the, the author at the, at the moment, but it's a historical um, narrative. Um, and there are so many books that when I get off the air, I'm going to be, I should have recommended this one. But I think it's just important um, people to, I mean, you can Google a lot of things these days, you know, and and to to go beyond like the, the sort of the, 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 the narrative. Yes, Hades had... Uh, some very difficult periods. We're going through a very difficult period right now where there are a lot of demonstrations with people on the streets demanding the president's resignation. But we also have, um, you know, wonderful art, wonderful music, and a wonderful culture, and a culture that's born out of, you know, revolution and resistance, um, but also has created um, great beauty. Now, on the subject of your books, we did get a tweet from P.C. Autry, who writes, Breathe Eyes Memory is one of my favorites. The definition of Haitian-French terms and cultural explanations was an education. So that's from a fan. If you had to pick one of your books, and I know that's like trying to choose between your children, but what is the one that, um, if you had to just choose one of them to recommend, what would you say? Well, I'm very super partial to Breath Eyes Memory because it's it's my baby. It taught me mm-hmm. to write. You know, it's the first of my books. That was your master's thesis. Yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's my it's my first one, and um, but I am also the the book we talked about about my uncle and my father's death called Brother I'm Dying. It's um, I feel it's it is my favorite because it feels it's like a family heirloom to me, and it's the book that I feel like if my children read, they'll know about both my country and my family. So that's that's also one of my favorites. It gives great perspective on your family story. I mean, I feel like we really get to know your uncle and your aunt and all these cousins and um, learn about your life in Haiti and in the U.S. It's, it's just this, I feel like I already know you, even though I just met you for the first time today. Well, the thing is, I think what's missing in the debate about immigration and the stigma, you know, the way immigrants are stigmatized is that we don't listen to people's personal stories. There are people who are spewing this that have never met an immigrant in their lives. So I feel also like that, that when I wrote that book, I felt like I want every immigration officer to read that so that they realize the next time someone like my uncle shows up in front of them, it's a human being with a family, with people who love them. So that's also why, I, why I'm partial to that book, that I feel like it 
it works out in the world and tells a story to people who might see immigrants as faceless and nameless. And that's also the common read at St. Louis University this year. That's got to be exciting to know this entire um, university is reading this book and and maybe developing some of that empathy that you're hoping will come out of getting to know an immigrant story. Yeah, I think they're reading Breath Eyes Memory, but that's also, you know, that's also a wonderful um, way of it because it was my, it's the way I was introduced to America, really. Um, they were in an Oprah, there was an Oprah's book club. So it is also an entry. And what I always hope for my books and any of my books, including Breath Eyes Memory, is that it'll give people a desire to learn more about Haiti. So it's an entry, it's an introduction, which I hope when people have read it, they're like, oh, I want to know more about the music, I want to know more about the art, I want to know more about the history and the culture of Haiti. Now, one of the things I loved in your memoir is you wrote about your fondness for the book Madeline uh, by Ludwig Bemelmans. I also loved that book as a child. Um, and I was I was pleased to see that in addition to writing all these books for adults, you've also written some a young adult book and a children's book. What's the trick to writing for younger readers in a way that they don't feel condescended to or that a book can hit for them the way Madeline hit for you and for me? Well, I I take writing for young people seriously because of that, like the Madeline. I felt like we can have such disparate ex- experiences, but still connect to this to this feisty little girl. So the trick is to you know write for children the way you would for adults, like to not look down on them. Children are very mature these days, especially. It's <laughs> a good point. They're very, they're very. They can you know they can catch on when you're trying when you're trying too hard or when you're you know. So I I. I just, I enjoyed very much. I started writing for children when my girls were born. And there are certain things I felt. And sometimes they, they participate in the writing. I'll read something to them and they're like, no child speaks like that. Or So, so they're so, good editors. Yes, I have in-house experts to, <laughs> to help me. You, you know, know, I'm wondering on, on the subject of your daughters, how has having the two of them changed the way you think about your own mother? I know you've also written about her a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, it's completely really given me a whole different perspective on 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 motherhood because I feel like when we're young we're just looking at our, our parents we don't realize that we didn't know them their whole lives like we just kind of <laughs> came in at some point when already when they were formed and so we only know them in this way so I seeing my daughters like at the beginning of their lives and, and realizing that has helped me see my mother and I my mom passed away about five years ago and I and I wrote a book called the art of death that could combined my mem- my recollections of her in her last days with other books that I was reading and really it's sort of like being an adult with your parents it's it's completely transformative I feel like at the end of my mother's life I felt like you know she gave birth to me and I ushered her out into you know into whatever her next step is in the this universe and that was completely transformative and that's so powerful yeah yeah so it, it sounds like that, you know, your relationship with your mother there at the end is when you really gained some of the, the most major changes to it. Oh, absolutely, because we had been separated in my childhood, so I didn't really get to grow up with her. And we really, I had the gift with both my parents as they were dying to sort of have that moment with them where nothing was left unsaid, you know. And I, I don't believe in closure as we often talk about it, but I felt like that was really fulfilling in the sense of being a child to have that had that that sort of you know exit interview with your with your with your parents and just to feel like everything was resolved at the end is such an extraordinary gift 
Edwidge Donica, thank you so much for joining us today. And congratulations on the St. Louis Literary Award that you're getting tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.